This is an episode of the Bedlam Book Club. I'm your host, Holly. Joining me as a co-host today is Maya. Hello. This is a non-profit, self-organized amateur podcast exploring the history of madness and the way that history continues to influence our lived realities. This podcast is recorded on stolen land. Our aim is to foster awareness and solidarity through the existence of a shared past. This episode contains mentions of infanticide, torture, and domestic violence. But first, welcome to season two. I'm so glad to be here. In this season, we'll be introducing storytelling frameworks in the form of myths and fairy tales. We'll also be diving deeper into some topics that we covered more briefly last season. These myths and fairy tales are initially what started me on my path to produce this podcast. And so I'm very excited to share these. Can you say a little bit more about the myths or fairy tales that you delved into when you were doing your first research? When I was doing my first research, I think the changeling was a big one. We'll cover the changeling in this episode. Um, I won't give uh, too much away. Spoiler alert. And then also Greek myth was a really, really big motivator. We'll talk about Greek myths, I think. Next episode. Next episode. So it's going to be a good time. We've got some really good stories to share and um, a really good analysis of those stories. What's important to you about seeing madness and myth? I think it's a way for us to demonstrate that we've always been here, that we're a part of these stories and we've always been a part of society. I think it's also important because it shows that society has always been grappling with this issue of madness and these stories are just one way to show that. Absolutely. And I know that um, one of the writers whose work is really heavily influential in the ideas we're going to be talking about confirms or states that fairy tales in particular are a way of thinking about or thinking through difference. We can see that kind of show up in these stories as they relate to madness too. Yeah, today we are going to look at fairy tales and the power of stories. We often hear stories about certain demographics long before we encounter them. And studies have shown that having a friend or a family member of a particular demographic goes a long way in shaping empathy towards that group. And that stories can be another way to do that. That there's like a parasocial relationship that's really powerful for characters from TV and books and all of that to, you know, generating empathy. So these aren't minor issues. No, this is really, really important and critical. And I think a tool that we should be using in our advocacy. Are we ready for some stories? Yeah, let's gather up to the hearth. Let's gather up to the hearth. We'll... First, we've got a little bit of background. Because we don't do anything without context. Not we try. Not book club. Nope, we are as thorough as we can be. <laughs> In the late Middle Ages and early modern period, folly and madness were synonyms. Folly was characterized by irrational, almost comedic behavior that was detrimental to the person enacting it. In the 1500s, it was also synonymous with human weakness and error. These themes feature heavily in the famous Grimm Brothers fairy tales, first published in 1812. Notice the time skip. Though these tales are likely to be of ancient pagan origins, the themes of folly are unmistakable. 
Likely the stories themselves are quite old, but the themes and details have drifted over time. Jacob Grimm himself said as much in his own writings, and spoke of the necessity of collecting these stories before any more drift was able to occur. He also spoke fervently against the influence of Christianity on German folklore and mythology. So is that part of why that time skip is significant? That Grimm himself was already worried about the stories kind of diverging from what he might think of as their purest form or their folkloric form being told among people or passed down generationally? Yeah, exactly. That's very astute. Um, and he, I'm sure he was looking at what was happening in the 1500s around, you know, these ideas of folly and realizing that if the story is much older than 1500, it's already gone through this lens of folly and the story has already changed. So there's this preservationist kind of motivation of I have to capture and pin this down before any more change can occur, which is obviously really different than oral tradition, which... I imagine is how a lot of these stories began. Exactly. So he's bringing, he and other collectors like him and his brother were bringing a different lens to the storytelling. And the versions that we're more familiar with are from that preservationist lens and that kind of written version, not the oral tradition. Yeah. And for all the preservationist lens that he worked with, he and his brother also would take, you know, if there were like five different versions of one story, they would consolidate it into one story. Mm -hmm. So we did lose some data <laughs> by because of their methods. Right. The act of observation changed the subject of observation. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So I actually have one of the Grimm's fairy tales uh, to share. Oh, um, and it's called the story of Dr. Know-It-All. It's not about me, is it? No, it's not. You're not a doctor, but you are a know-it-all. <laughs> so there was a poor man who wanted to become a doctor because he wanted to kind of change his circumstances. He wanted to be making more money. And so he goes to somebody who already is a doctor and he asks how the poor man can become one. The doctor tells him to buy an ABC book, sell all of his possessions, and buy doctor clothes and call himself Dr. Know-It-All. And so the poor man does this. And from here on out, the story is of the poor man stumbling into success on accident, showing an aptitude for guessing correctly and just giving the impression that he was indeed a know-it-all when in fact he knew nothing and again, would kind of stumble into success on accident. And that's the story of Dr. Know-It-All. And so in this story, like, you can see the folly. Like, he's, he's, he's acting strangely in a way, and he's kind of even, like, I guess, I guess it's like a, it's a turn on the, the concept of folly, because, like, he's working against his self-interest. He's buying an ABC's book. He's selling all of his possessions and he's traveling around pretending to be a doctor. Um, he's doing all these things, which is just horrible, very insulting advice from the doctor, but he takes it anyway. Um, but the joke here is, is that it keeps working in his favor when it shouldn't. There's a sort of blessed fool quality. Yes. The behavior that is so foolish, in other words, and is on the surface and is against his own best interest turns into his salvation. 
mm-hmm. in the course of the story. Yeah, and that's kind of the the pivot that this story takes. So we're going to shift gears a little bit, and as our in-house Jewish culture so-called expert, um, (laughs) I'm going to take on the next section um, and talk a little bit about Eastern European Jews and their folkloric tradition um, and share some of those stories. So meanwhile, kind of separate from the Brothers Grimm, there's this Yiddish tradition of folk folk tale and folklore originating in Central and Eastern Europe, folklore that the Brothers Grimm are not cataloging. So this concept of Jewishness in the U.S. is heavily influenced by the people that we're going to be talking about, the Ashkenazi Jews. This is not the only subgroup of Jews by any means. Um, But for some context, the um, Ashkenazi Jews originate in Central Europe um, and Eastern Europe. Before the 16th century, there were actually relatively few Jews living there, um, which is something that I wasn't really aware of because um, my family is Ashkenazi Jewish and um, is so heavily tied to that region that, you know, I was kind of under the impression that it dated back earlier. Um, Those numbers, that Jewish population increased dramatically over the next few centuries, um, all the way through the 1700s and beyond. And that, that is the group of people that solidified into the Ashkenazi Jews, a Jewish diaspora um, that solidified during the Holy Roman Empire. By 1939, immediately prior to the Holocaust, that was 7 million people, 7 million Eastern European Jews. Over their centuries in Europe, they contributed heavily to culture, science, and philosophy. To quote a little bit from um, a compiler of this folklore um, that we're going to be sharing. As diverse and decentralized as this population was, the vast majority were united by their mamalotion, their mother tongue. Um, Yiddish was the language of daily life and a language in which a really extensive oral and written tradition was created. Um, there were organized efforts to collect this folklore, some of which began before World War II, so not motivated by the losses, the devastation of the Holocaust. This was a an internal motivation um, to gather these stories, probably in a similar preservationist lens to the one we were talking about earlier. One of the most prolonged efforts, which is ongoing, was conducted by an organization called YIVO um, that is really continues to exist to this day, was founded in 1925 and focuses on researching and sharing and celebrating the culture of Eastern European Jewry. Um, Collectors um, in that project, even early on, were urged not to make the stories prettier um, or fancy them up or gussy them up and to seek out gifted storytellers from all backgrounds. Um, Among these stories are some that fit into the framework of folly. Um, They may involve humorously simplistic behavior or the misuse or manipulation of logic, which, at least to my eye as one person, strikes me as a very particularly Jewish theme. Um, So one story that we want to share that touches on madness um, is the coat of patches. Um, A man was so poor that he couldn't support his wife, um, and he went to beg for alms. Each time he collected a sum of money and coins, he'd change it into banknotes and sew it beneath a patch on his coat for safekeeping. He was out in the world for a long time, trying to redeem himself, trying to make his fortune, And after 30 years of wandering, he decided to return to his wife and children, who had long since become convinced that he was dead. He bought a coat with a fur collar, dressed himself up as a rich man, returns home with his patch coat and a bundle. 
children are overjoyed to see their father after so long. And he does what a good Jewish father would do, goes to synagogue, celebrate his own return, reconnect with the community. While he's gone, a poor man comes to ask for alms and his wife gives away the patched coat. The horror. The man figures out the mistake, <laughs> runs out and purchases a fiddle. Very logical next step. He carries it to the town square where he played it as he sang, I'm a fool, I'm a fool. People come running from all sides crying, Chaim Yankel has gone mad and a crowd gathers. The poor man shows up in the coat and Chaim Yankel begs to trade trade coats. Everyone laughed. Just think what a crazy man will do. A fine coat with a fur collar for a patched rag. The poor man is delighted. They trade and the poor man runs off as fast as he can. Chaim Yankel goes home, unstitches the patches and retrieves the money. He lives for the rest of his life as a rich man and a clever <laughs> one. So this is one where madness is being, is a motivating fact, is a turning point in the story. But its conceptions of madness are being used by the protagonist for his own ends. I really enjoy this story. And I also find it really, really interesting that in this case, like the community gets in on it. Yes. And the community is kind of the first one to be like, to use the term fool and to use the term madness. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of commentating on what is... A very silly situation, but a very l logical one. <laughs> yeah, the scheme for getting this coat back really relies on community perception and commentary. Mm -hmm. So in order to kind of turn the tide and get these crowd dynamics in his favor so that he can get this coat back without arousing the person's suspicion, because why would he be so eager to get his tattered coat? Yeah, He, he gets the community in on it. Yeah, he must be mad. Yeah, you gotta bring the violin. And he's also been gone for so long that people mm -hmm. don't have a particular expectation of him. Right, so he can also use that to kind of like, here's the explanation of why I was gone for 30 years. People are very willing to believe this story. And I think it's also telling when we're thinking about, you know, part of what makes these stories so interesting is we're trying to decode what this says about the teller's understanding of what madness was, what mm -hmm. it is. And so at least in this story, once there's this pretext or kind of shared community understanding of his madness, then he's able to operate from an illogical framework. And the poor man who takes the coat thinks he's getting one over on, you know. <laughs> yeah, he runs away as fast as he can. Yeah. Yeah, he's made, he's made good on this exchange. So um, I think it's an interesting example. So the other set of story, the other story group that feels really important to talk about is a real um, family favorite and a famous kind of story group in this oral tradition, the city of Helm. What do you know about Helm, Holly? Before this project, um, absolutely nothing. I hadn't heard of it. It was just a complete blank space for me. Fascinating. I think I'm remembering now that when we kind of started talking about including Jewish stories, um, I remember saying, well, I'm not sure if I know any that really relate. 
I mean, except for Helm, maybe. And so that's uh, that's where we landed. There are many. So there are many similarities between the stories of Helamir Chachonim, Yiddish for the wise men of Helm, and those of other cultures. So this is not a, actually a unique thread of stories or a completely unique thread of stories, particularly those found in the Germanic variants. So we're operating in the same kind of geographic area as some of the um, fairy tales we were talking about earlier. These stories came became a part of oral folklore and once placed within the cultural framework of Eastern European Jewry, they became Judaized. Um, and the first publication of Helmike stories appeared written in Yiddish in 1597 in pamphlets. And they were tales of the town of Schildberg, not Helm, translated from a German edition. So these stories first entered Jewish culture as Schildberger stories, and no one really knows when it became the town of Helm. Um, during the 19th century, a no number of other Jewish towns figured as fool's towns, including Poison. Um, but Helm is now by far the most famous of these. One way that this town of Helm, which is a town of fools, um, is explained by this story. Um, an angel had a bag of fools and was charged by God to distribute them evenly throughout the world. But the angel tripped and dropped them all in one place. And that's how we got the town of Helm, a town of fools. So for an example of how the story structures, there are many stories that take place in Helm, um, a city of fools where the kind of the logic is twisted, the kind of um, there's a very sort of pedantic logic that um, leads to completely silly and absurd outcomes. Um, so this is how Helmites lighted up the night. Um, the Helmites were troubled by how dark it was at night, and it was indeed very dark. Um, when it was dark, they often fell and just broke their arms and legs. Not a great situation. So they formed a foolproof plan. They noticed that on nights when the moon was out, they had fewer accidents. First, they had to wait for a night of a full moon, and finally it came. What a night. Seeing the moon's reflection in a barrel of water, they quickly took a board and nailed it over the top. Later, when the new moon came and the night was black, they opened the barrel to take their moon out of storage, you know, when it would really come in handy. They looked into the barrel and there was none, just at the time when they needed it. Alas, someone has stolen our moon. I love the Looney Tunes antics that happen in the city of Helm. Mm -hmm. I also want to go back to the origin story with like the angel. Cause like, mm -hmm. there's almost like this weird naturalistic hmm. kind of take on madness, which is the idea that like, they're saying that madness should be evenly distributed across humanity or at least folly. You know, or folly. Yeah. Um, which is kind of a weird way of saying that, like, this is biological. Interesting. Yeah. Or kind of like an idea of human variance. Like, there's one of every type, you know, a certain number of people. There's some rabbis and there's some fools, you know, that's just how life is. Yeah. Every town's got one. Yeah. Um, and, like, that's kind of the impression that I get from that one. But then they're like, oops. And so this is a place where the dis the proportions are out of whack. Mm -hmm. So it kind of plays with that idea of yeah. like, what if everyone was a fool? And it had to have been of divine origin that this 
displacement mm-hmm. occurred where there's just so many people in one spot. Right. And, you know, and this is, I think, what they what they're talking about with like the this story of towns of fools is not an exclusively jewish story but it becoming judaized may mean that we're using our faith-based references we're using our own kind of cultural and religious stories to kind of flavor or explain or give context to this town that we're telling stories about yeah, it's pretty great. It's pretty great. And, you know, you were to go back to your Looney Tunes comment, my understanding is that there might be a very direct link because Bugs Bunny is modeled after Groucho Marx. And so, and Groucho Marx was a Jewish comedian and kind of steeped in this, like, this American Jewish kind of cultural milieu there's a chain, there's a pretty direct link, actually. I don't think it's a total accident that you make that comparison. It's pretty great. All right. So pivoting from the Yiddish folk tales, um, and now we're going to go and visit the Celts. So the Celts could broadly be considered as inhabiting what is now modern day France, Spain, Britain, Belgium, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. Many of their myths and traditions have been heavily blended with Christianity, meaning that many cultural and philosophical traditions are now lost to us, which is very similar to what we saw with the German folktales. To amplify the issue, the keepers of culture and science, the Druids, were incredibly secretive, meaning that cultural, philosophical, and scientific progress was kept under proverbial lock and key until the Druids were all wiped out. No one likes a gatekeeper, kids. This is why information needs to be distributed amongst all the people. (laughs) Just like the fools of Helm. Just. (laughs) (laughs) This is not a story of madness, but it is a story of disability. And so I just wanted to share it. There was the the first king of this group called the Tuatha de Danon, which are... Maybe gods, maybe not. Christianity says no. The pagans say maybe. Um, and his name was uh, Nanda. He winds up um, having this very big, famous, important battle, and he loses his arm um, in that battle. And so they say, well, since you've lost a part of yourself and you're not whole, you can't be king anymore. And so he goes to a silversmith, um, gets a new arm made for him, um, and with this prosthetic, the Tuatha de Danon, uh, decide, oh, okay, well, you can be our king again. It's interesting because it reminds me of what I've been learning about in relation to the medical versus the social model of relating to disability. And so this is like, reminds me of the medical model where in that conception, the goal is to kind of intervene in experiences of disability and... Um, in such a way that they become normal by the standards of the society. And so his silver arm grants him that normalcy so that he becomes whole and is made whole in his previous position as king. It doesn't force us to reconsider disability in a way. Yeah, it kind of patches it over. Mm Mm-hmm. What's the difference in this person's leadership? What changed, you know? And his solution is also 
maybe meant to be an example of his canniness, that he understands that it's important that he's made whole and he finds this loophole that his people will accept. And so it shows that he's kind of savvy in the way that he solves problems. And he's also therefore like meritorious of this good ending. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it like that before. Well, so moving into more madness and also just general disability territory, now we, for our last story, get to the infamous Changeling. And I will say that this story has got a lot of pretty squicky stuff in it. Yeah, definitely, Um, you know, use care. Yeah, use care. And if you feel like skipping it, there's no shame in that. Um, We'll be talking about it for a while, so skip ahead. I don't know, five, ten minutes. So the Changeling has a cornucopia of versions across Western Europe and allegories um, elsewhere. I want to focus on the most popular version, where a human, usually a child but not always, is kidnapped and replaced by fairies. These are not your run-of-the-mill high-fantasy fairies. Celtic fairies in their original form are very ugly and they're very cruel. They are capable of powerful magic they often um, use to torture the minds and bodies of humans and animals for any number of reasons. This could include mind control, nerve spasms, shooting pain, and other visceral ailments through something called elf shot. However, the changeling is probably a little bit better known um, and is seemingly of pre-Christian origin. The story goes something like this. A family is going about their day when they realize that one of their children is acting strangely. It is later discovered that their child has been replaced by one of the fairies and is merely imitating the child so they can eat all their food and cause some other mischief. The changeling's behavior is usually characterized as uncanny, but an otherwise perfect imitation of the child. The fate of the original human child largely varies on telling, but they are either killed in servitude or sent to hell. Sometimes the child swap happens in utero. How exactly one gets rid of a changeling and secures the return of their own child varies by region. Some ascribe to the idea of exposing their young children to fire or to water. We have many accounts of babies and young children being drowned in rivers, left in the wilderness, or beaten to death on suspicion of being changelings. In 1895, almost the 1900s, we have a rather detailed case where several family members beat a woman named Bridget Cleary to death and then burnt her corpse. The family members were initially to be charged with murder for the deed. However, when the judge heard that the family was convinced the woman was a changeling, he reduced the sentence from murder to manslaughter. So these stories were still being given weight, you know, centuries and centuries after some of the fairy tales and folk tales that we've been discussing. Yeah, like I can't stress enough that this woman... Bridget was killed and burnt in 1895. I think that is extremely disturbing and the fact that it was so understood that 
family members might have such a reaction to changelings that it caused a reduced sentence. It gives some sense of how much weight these stories might still have. The narrative of the changeling is quite disturbing, not only because it resulted in the murders of untold numbers of people. Like, part of this is the judiciary and how it's responding, just like you said. The narrative itself is particularly unsettling because it's a covert invasion by an outside, inhuman, hostile entity. You are not observed by a child, but rather an ancient, malicious entity. Its inability to behave in a, quote, normal manner is an insult to the parent who is responsible for the child's behavior. The idea that a fairy would infiltrate a family um, also reinforced nucleic aspects of the home and family structure that give the story its claustrophobic elements. Even the mother's body, pregnancy, labor, and milk are violated in the presence of this thief. All of that said, modern analysts of these tales suspect that most known stories and cases of changelings can be attributed to physical disability, mental illness, and autism. The changeling remains a powerful example of how normalized the discarding of human beings can be. Stories are never just stories. And with that, Maya, what are you still processing? I don't think that you'll be surprised to hear that I'm still processing the changeling stories and... I just feel a lot of grief over it. And I think it's, you know, without kind of delving into really traumatic territory, it's painful to imagine children who weren't cared for and who were seen by their parents as not human. Um, And that these stories also gave a cloak or rationale to a kind of discarding while also motivating it and so thinking about how stories influence behavior and justify it and how that cycle continues in that way yeah i'm still processing similar things i think it's really really interesting you take this innocent harmless person and the narrative that you spin around it is so toxic and frightening and claustrophobic like i use that word in the script and i'll use it again because it becomes a home invasion horror film absolutely i was just about to say this is a home invasion narrative yeah 100 percent. and like those are like really creepy claustrophobic movies and now this is like a medieval or actually i shouldn't say medieval like i don't know how old this story is it's folktale, so it could go back as far as ancient times. We don't know. I'd be curious if anybody has more information on that. But this has been happening for so long. Um, and which means that we've had entire families who have been petrified and scared of what has amounted to just disabled people or neurodiverse people. People who are more likely to be affected by social attitudes. 
more likely to be affected by an absence of compassion and people who, as we all do, but people who in particular rely on a social structure that supports and sees them. And so it's so sad to see that family unit break down in such a violent way and under such horrifying circumstances, like how this, this traumatized everybody. And this is also a place where we've been telling stories and this is a place where folklore has a historic element, right? Because we're interested in where stories come from and how they're transmitted and what they say about the culture that they come from. But this is a place where we're also talking about history. We're talking about stories that affected the lives of real people. And so we're seeing those things kind of converge, which I know is why you concluded by saying they're not just stories. What was your takeaway? I think I'm still thinking a little bit about what unites the stories we've talked about and what the stories we've talked about tell us about madness. And Mm. I think right now I'm not totally sure. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we've got, we've got two different stories that I've identified. We've got, well, there goes that guy off being crazy, just like he is kind of funny, kind of weird. Mm. And we'll just kind of be bemused by this and we'll just kind of like learn to live with it. From Grimm's Fairy Tales and from Helm, that's the story that I got. Mm-hmm. And the changeling story is we don't understand this, kill it, kill it with fire. <laughs> Very literally in some cases. Mm-hmm. There's coexistence and then there's violence, essentially. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's something that we could say is that these stories of folly are, in a way, a story of coexistence. Imperfect ones. Imperfect. But there definitely is that element of harmlessness. And the possibility of triumph. Sometimes Mm, these characters mm -hmm. are featured as the protagonists of these stories, and through their own kind of which has problems, but through their own kind of purity of spirit, they reach a transformation or a different outcome. Yeah, and that's a really, really interesting thing for you to bring up because, and like you said, like it's an imperfect, um, an imperfect situation, but there's all, but like this, the story with the patch coat, everybody got something out of that deal. Right. And... <laughs> It's also worth saying that nobody in that story actually experiences madness. Right. The story turns on tropes, but the protagonist is clever in a way that enables him to deploy madness for the sake of his own ends. And that's interesting, too. Yeah. And I think that something that these stories can like also miss is that like in madness, there is sometimes real suffering. And that the stories are seemingly blind to. And that the folly is kind of there for their amusement. Mm-hmm. And I also want to check on this, on or at least check how you feel about this, but um, I know that there's many examples of physical disability in fairy tales and myth. Mm-hmm. And there's a particular link and a problematic one and a a shitty one between 
physical disability and villainy. So the villains in our stories, including contemporary stories, including children's movies that we grow up seeing, once you start seeing that lens, then you see it in many, many stories. Yeah. Um, but when we go to look for madness in fairy tales, or when I look, went to look for madness in Yiddish folklore, I didn't find as many examples as maybe I expected. Yeah, it's kind of weird that we don't have, like... Because, like you said, like there is this trope between um, physical disability and I'll add, like, physical differences. You know, like a scar or something like that, like people with scars and physical disabilities wind up being the villains a lot of time. And like you said, even in contemporary media, we don't seem to have that equivalent for mental illness. Like it doesn't seem to be there with the exception of, I've heard it said that certain villains have like personalities that could get labeled with stuff in the DSM-5. Right. But it's a little less on the surface is part of what I hear you saying. Yeah. You have to go a little bit deeper. And in our contemporary culture, that story changes. And when we start eventually talking about madness in movies and in more contemporary culture, I think we're going to see different kinds of links between madness and bad guys essentially yeah and like i'll just even just rattle off a couple examples right now just for conversation and then we'll you know we'll we'll have whole episodes about this but like the mad scientist the mad king like those are really relevant and very well known with a lot of examples but when we're focusing our attention on fairy tales and folklore from europe we're not seeing that same link, at least on the surface. Yeah. And yeah. so we have to dig a little bit deeper for those stories. Yeah. Hence our attention on folly. Right. Which is a particular attitude towards madness that, like you said, isn't, does, doesn't quite seem to... Yeah, it feels like part of the family, but not quite the crux. Yeah. It's like you said, it's part of the family, but where's everybody else? Right, especially when I feel like everybody else is just outside the frame, which is why I was so interested in the story of the patch coat, because it's one of the few stories in the collection that I was reading, which was published by Yivo, that had a very explicit mention of madness. Um, there are, of course, more mentions of folly, like we've been talking about, um, and maybe more descriptions of what we could loosely describe as mental disability, but this is the few, this is, this story of the man in the patch coat is one of the few examples where madness is brought up and it's brought up in such a way that it's clear that there's a shared understanding of what it looks like to be mad. That story wouldn't work unless the townspeople saw a man with a violin singing about being a fool and knowing exactly what that means, which is that he's lost his mind. And then the next thing that happens is that the person wearing his coat kind of takes advantage of that situation. Yeah, he kind of does. Right? So that means that there is a shared understanding. There's an idea of what madness looks like. There's a social attitude. All those things are at play. 
but there isn't a story that centers that person yeah it would be i'm sure the stories are out there but it has been hard to find any Mm -hmm. and it's just it's interesting it's like there's a lot of especially with early history i mean it's been a while since we talked about ancient history or prehistory but the word that always comes up for me is tantalizing there's glimpses but the people's lived realities is just out of reach yeah and one of the conclusions that i draw from that which is unfortunate which is that it could have been that if you were mad and had severe mental illness back in the day that you just didn't last long enough for there to be a story about you and that's the grief i think yeah and that's part of the grief about the changeling stories as we think about who was lost another also hard possibility that i'm contemplating or impression that i might get from this is the idea of are the stories of people with madness worth telling in the context of the kind of fairy tales or myth making or meaning making that people were doing with these fairy tales that often have a kind of moralistic bent and where there's often a transformation that rewards goodness or purity of a certain kind where somebody's hardship is cast off and they're transformed and they have their happy ending in effect it's hard not to see madness included in that or that potentiality for transformation that rewards the good well is that it is that what we got (laughs) (laughs) holly's gonna go get in a depression bath (laughs) i'm gonna go treat myself i just had you can't tell but i just Maya finished talking and I just did like a thousand yard stare for just like a little bit. (laughs) You need some hashtag self-care. I need some hashtag self-care. I'm going to go do some self-care after this. I encourage everybody listening to just go, you know, get themselves a treat. Get yourself a treat. Yeah, get a treat. Whatever that is. Whatever that is for you. I'm imagining a little brownie. Like that may not be what everyone likes, but that's... That's the treat I'm picturing for you. A brownie is another name for the fair folk. Uh-oh. So maybe, you know, something else. <laughs> <laughs> I dare not say their name. Too many associations. Too many associations. They'll hear me. Um, I forgot to mention earlier that if you say the name of the fair folk you'll get their attention. And so people had a bunch of euphemisms because they were so scared of them. Right. The fair folk being one of them. The fair folk being a euphemism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We don't speak their name. We shan't speak their name. I mean, we did a bunch of times. We did a bunch of times. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think we're already anticipating a fair amount of bad luck in our future. So (laughs) (laughs) we're probably fine. In fact, you know, I would welcome the assistance, honestly. (laughs) I would welcome some supernatural intervention. Uh Uh, That's a separate issue. Um, We have a really important book recommendation from this episode because we are really heavily influenced by a particular book in all of what we're talking about. Yes, would you like to... 
debut no, it? No, I think you should. All because right. you love this book. I love this book. Um, I think if you enjoyed conceptually this episode and you want to delve further into this topic, I can't think of a better recommendation than the book Disfigured by Amanda Leduc. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. This is a disability lens on fairy tales. Um, and it goes into a little bit more detail on especially like physical disability, but it also covers mental disability a little bit and madness. And she has a really amazing take on the importance of stories and why they matter and why we're having this conversation at all. And she shares a little bit of her own story in a memoristic way interspersed with her analysis, which I think is a um, really powerful decision and certainly one that we wouldn't ask her to make, but as generous of her to do, I think. Yeah. So it's a, it's a great book. Highly recommend. And with that, this has been the Bedlam Book Club. I'm Maya. I'm Holly. Take care of yourself out there and don't call the attention of the fair folk. This has been an episode of the Bedlam Book Club. This show was produced, written, and created by Maya and Holly. Intro and outro music was by Coma Studio. Check out our bibliography in the show notes. Make sure to practice self-care and contact local resources if you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health emergency. Take care of each other out there. <laughs>